How you doing, Carter Stone? You guys doing all right? Good. I am excited to be here. Thank you, Pastor John, for your wonderful introduction. I I'm really am excited to be here because, you know, part of being here is, is this really brings a lot of emotional, you know, just emotions within, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. But um, I'm just really excited because when I see the room, when I see some of your faces, and I've even hugged some of you, um, it was just really has been just all the reminders um, of just the years that we spent together. Um, you know, I'm married. My wonderful wife, Angela, she is here, married for 18 years, or going on 18 years. And we are, we have been married for these 18 years, and we have um, seven kids together. You know, so yes, it's never a dull moment in the Lewis household. And, um, and it is just one of those things that, you know, where we have a, a daughter, or our, the oldest daughter that we have together is Trinity, and she is a sophomore. She's 16, Jade, 15. Briaya is 13. DJ Dottie Jr. is 12. Braden is 11, and Nathaniel is 9. If you have that many kids, you will forget too. So, I mean, but so we have pretty much from the 10th grade, 9th grade, 7th grade, 6th grade, 5th grade, 4th grade. So we own the PTA on three different schools. We are involved. We are, we are there. And we're just really, we're really excited, you know, kind of about that. And like John said, Pastor John said, I am the lead pastor at Blueprint Church. And I am also, I work with the North American Mission Board, which I help to oversee um, the SEND network. And, you know, but I just, you know, as I think about the emotions and I think about some of the faces, I still remember the day, John, when um, is after Cornerstone was planted. And I remember walking around, you know, to the office that he held for so many years at Blueprint Church. And I remember just kind of shedding a couple of tears there, just, just kind of being reminded of just the sadness and the grief that I had, you know, it's just like one of those things where there was this both joy in seeing what the Lord was doing, but also sadness that the man that I've been co-laboring with for over almost a decade is now moving on to bigger and better things, and, you know, and, and just to kind of see the fruit of what God has done with, with, with John and Richard you know, and just everybody that, you know, that has been, it's just really, it is a, a glorious time. So I'm excited. So let's go before the Lord and ask him to bless our time. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful, Lord, that we can take these moments to pause and to reflect and to think about how good you have been. Lord, even in the time, the, in the statement of saying how good that you've been, I'm reminded, Father, of both the, the good times and the bad times, the ups, the downs, the struggles that we have had, Lord. And um, But Lord, we can State is true that all things truly do work together for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this Father is because of that that we know that we can rest because we know that no matter what circumstances, no matter what life changes that may come, Lord, we are reminded of the fact, Lord, that we are conformed into the image of your Son. And so, Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you, Father, for the fruit of gospel labor. Father, I'm thankful that, that this is even for me a reminder that, Lord, that you are still alive and active. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the fruit that will come in the move that will take place in March, Father, as they shift over to the building. Father, I pray, Lord, 
Lord, that every individual in this neighborhood would be confronted with the gospel. That they would have to wrestle with the truth of what to do with the person and work of your son, Jesus. Father, we're thankful, Lord, for the laborers that you are raising up in this church for your harvest. Lord, I pray that every individual in here, Father, would take on responsibility for wherever they live, for wherever they work, for wherever they play. Lord, and I pray, God, that you would lead them to having an interaction, a conversation, Father, that would declare the person and work of your son, Jesus. Lord, we are in desperate need of you. And we pray ultimately for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ultimately, Lord, we're here telling our love for you. And it's really out of a response of your love for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Psalm chapter 109. We're going to get there. It's going to take me a little while to get there, but we will get there. Um, And, you know, I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen the movie Inside Out. Anybody seen the movie Inside Out? It was filmed in 2005. How many of you guys? Show it by a short hand so I can know how much to go. Inside Out is one of those must-see movies. You know, it really is. It's one of, it's a Pixar movie, a drama that was formed, that started in 2015. And it's, it's really one of those computer animated um, comedies or kind of dramas that they had, that Pixar created. You know, and what was interesting about this um, movie is that the movie starts off, and it, you know, it starts off with this um, kind of this um, embodiment of just different emotions. And what they do, they have these five different embodiments of, of different emotions that they had. And the first emotion that they start off with is the emotion joy. And they just name her joy. And it kind of starts off with this baby being born. And, and as the baby is born, her, the, the baby's name is Riley, but as this baby was born, that Joy is, you see Joy pressing this button, kind of, kind of, I guess, manipulating her emotions, and she's just crying. Just like most babies, they, they at the beginning, they cry. But what I also love about the clip is that um, 33 seconds into the movie, um, Joy is rudely interrupted with another emotion, and that emotion is sadness. And as Joy interacts with sadness, um, she's uncomfortable with sadness. And then um, immediately after that, then all these other different emotions of anger and, and, um, and disgust and all these different emotions started to come in and this room gets crowded. And what's interesting about the movie is all throughout the movie, um, Joy gives a description for all of the emotions but didn't have any type of, emo- didn't have any type of purpose for um, sadness. And it was really interesting kind of in that dynamic of what was taking place because as um, the the story kind of goes on, that you begin to find this place of what both sadness and anger and guilt and disgust and all these things that they showed this proper place because the thing was is that ultimately, like many of us, that the movie depicted it in a way that the only emotion that we really want ever is what? Joy. That we is joy. But what I hope to hope for us to get today is that the only way that you can get true joy is that if you accept the person and work of Jesus in a way where you accept the tools that he has given us, 
in order to navigate what I would consider the 18 inches out of our heads and into our hearts. Into our hearts. And so we're going to talk about feelings. We're going to get into our feelings today. All right. So here we go. And what we're going to do, basically four things today, four primary things. First, I want to basically define feelings, what I mean by kind of these feelings. The second thing um, I'm going to do is I just want to describe, and I'm going to, this is when we'll take a deep dive into kind of the emotions um, in Psalm 109 and take kind of a case study in, the, the, in David, who, had, who was always in his feelings. Then I'm going to challenge you to accept feelings or accept emotions as a tool that God gives us, gives you and I to navigate through a broken world. That he gives us something to help us take us from our head and into our hearts. And then I'm going to end with basically a couple of practical ways. Practical ways that we can use these two that God has given us. Mark chapter 12 and 30 says this. It says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You see, God is calling us to love him with all of our entirety. You see, but the problem is, especially in kind of Bible-believing churches, is that what, what we do is that we end up kind of trying to love God only in our, in our heads, but never within our hearts. And so we go in and we just have this thing, if you teach right, then they will think right. And if they think right, then they will act right, which is all true. But the problem is, is that it doesn't seep down into the kind of the emotional total being of who we are. And so we have this mindset of believe this, do this, believe this, do this, believe this, do this. And what it does is it produces a legalism in us that kind of pushes us to perform for God. And so what, what happens is, is that what we believe is that if I am obedient, or if I sacrifice enough, right, then God will love me. And then if I can establish God loves me, then I can be more vulnerable to him and then be needy. But the problem is, is what we find in our lives, if your life is like my life, is that we find that we're never obedient enough and we never sacrifice enough to ever merit what we would consider God's love. Right? What we recognize is that in the Christian life is that God is more holy than I ever thought and I'm more sinful than I ever thought. That Tim Keller says that not only do we need to repent from the bad things that we do, we need to repent for the reasons why we do the good things. Right? And then Paul said it like he says, oh, wretched man that I am. The very things I want to do, I find myself not doing. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And he basically comes down to this thing. And, and unless we get to the point where we can get to the Romans 8, chapter 1, where it says, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, and I think this is an important thing, is that when we are able to express our neediness to God and to recognize that we are human and God is God, that is then that we will do just like all newborn babes, because a newborn babe, as they come in, they're they're what do they offer? Nothing. I know we love them, but they don't really offer nothing. And whenever a newborn babe, they all they do is they come with neediness. And what do they do with their neediness? They cry. They cry out. And out of this cry, what does you, what did you do with the cries of your children? 
you met them. Hopefully you met them. And then it was at them meeting you that you were able now to produce and to demonstrate your love. And that produces sacrifice and ultimately obedience. And I would ask that this is the gospel. This is the way that God has called us. But the question is, and the problem is, is that we have been taught how not to cry out. We have been taught to say that any way of our cry out is considered weak, is considered wrong. And we have learned that what it means to become an adult is to quench what we feel. And so, and I, and I really believe that, that we have not been able to quarantine that. And so now what we experience is, in a lot of ways, a Christianity that is void of a holistic love relationship with God. Because we've learned to love him with our mind and with our strength, but not with our heart and our soul. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs 4.23, it says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. It is the source of life. So what does it mean for us to guard our hearts? What does it mean for us to protect it and to do it above all else? And so really what I want to do is as we begin to define, what do I, you know, and I'm going to bring in, and it's, it's a book called The Voice of the Heart. It's, I, I believe it's a great read. Um, and it's called The Voice of the Heart, and it's a, a Dr. Chip Dodd basically wrote this book. And this book, basically what, he's, he, what he argues is that the Bible or, um, you know, the human truth is that there are eight emotions. There are eight feelings. So in the same way there are three primary colors, that he would argue that there are eight primary emotions. And that any other emotions outside of these eight are a combination of or a mixture of these. That every emotion that we can get under the sun comes from out of these. What I'm not here to argue is the inerrancy of that statement. What I am here to give is some tools to help us to navigate these these um, truths that we have about kind of the human truth. And so really quickly, um, let me just kind of give you the, what, what he talks about in the book, um, the eight feelings. And on there, there's the chart that what he believes is that there's eight primary feelings. And these feelings are sad, anger, fear, hurt, lonely, shame, guilt, and glad. And basically, this is what he argues that these are the primary emotions, that these eight emotions are, are a group of feelings that all the other feelings can be mixed together to express the other feelings, that these eight feelings that are presented in the, in the voice of the heart is something that we don't have to be taught, that as from the time that we are born, they are just ways to express yourself. There are ways to, to do that. Um, and if you notice on this chart that you have eight feelings that go down and then there are both an impaired expression and then there's the gift. The impaired expression is an unwillingness. Whenever we have an unwillingness to confess where we are emotionally, then what ends up coming out, our biology and things, this kind of nature comes out and takes over and it begins to express itself in what we call an impaired expression. Right? But if you are willing to accept these gifts 
or accept these tools, then there also can be a gift that comes from this, from these. And that represents the gift side. Let me explain a little bit. So the idea of sadness, we kind of started off with this idea of sadness. Sadness, and let me just quickly give you a definition. Sadness is a gift that we've been given to enable to express the loss of what we care about. So sadness is simply just knowing that I care about something and I've lost it, right? Sadness is a feeling that allows us to have pain about something that has been attached and that's going away. And ultimately, the more sad that you are, the more you're honoring what you lost, right? And so it's, it's not a, a, a bad thing, you see. And in there, basically, if you go to the left side, if you don't do sadness then what you end up having is what you call self-pity. But if you do sadness, you can have the gift of acceptance. Let me explain. If I'm unwilling to express my sadness, because a lot of us, we do that, this idea of, you know, I don't want to admit that I'm sad because I got to be tough. I got to be strong for everybody else. I got to do. So what ends up taking place is that you create kind of this Eeyore mindset. Woe is me. I'm just the worst of all people. Right? And you start getting in there. And so what ends up happening is that you're unwilling to confess that you're sad. So what you end up doing is that you end up wanting someone else to do your sadness work for you. And you're going to see that all throughout all of these. Right? You ever heard the statement, hurt people what? Hurt people. Why? Because hurt people become resentful to people. And then when you're resentful to people, you become revengeful for people. And then you end up hurting people. So you want other people to do the hurt that you don't want to do for yourself. When you are sad and not willing to admit that you're sad and to accept that this is not okay and I'm, and I'm struggling, that you end up becoming self-pity and you get the Eeyore mindset. And then what ends up happening is that you want other people to be sad for you. Right? And so these are things, these are tools that God has given us. And so you see this idea of sadness. You know, and if you can, and I can just go down the road with a sadness or anger. How many of you guys believe, and how many of you have ever been taught that anger is a good thing? Right? Good. A few of you. Anger. But what I'm here to say is that anger is neither bad nor good. Anger is a tool that gives us. You understand that anger is that in anger can either lead to depression or it can lead to passion. You see, because what we have been taught is that anger is not a good thing, what we end up doing is that we suppress. All anger tells us is that something matters. You only get angry about the things that matter to you. But it's vulnerable. And you don't want to allow someone to get to you. So you end up suppressing that. And so like in a lot of ways, all of us kind of live semi-depressed lives. Because we're constantly pushing down what matters to us. You see, but I I recognize the very reason that we moved to to Atlanta, the very reason why I plant a church, the very reason why I've done it is because I was angry. I remember a day when, you know, in 1999, when I'm, here I am, I'm an African-American, and I'm going, and no one gets me. It felt like either I'm around people who understood my context but didn't get my theology, or I was around a group of people who understood my theology, but they didn't understand my context. And I felt like this third culture kid that no one really gets me. 
And I remember being frustrated and mad because I was asking for people. I said, will you disciple me? Will you disciple me? And no one had a category. No one was willing to say, yeah, I will spend that time. Yeah, I will disciple you. And I remember just being so frustrated and so angry that I remember at that time, me and my friend, one of the pastors in New York basically said, we made this commitment. He's like, we want to be the last generation that ever has to leave the urban context for sound discipleship. And it called this passion in me, and it was birthed out of an anger. And instead of suppressing it, it led me. You know what passion is? Passion is a willingness to endure the pain for something that is greater than the pain. And whenever you are truly living in that anger and allowing that anger to be expressed, it's important. I'm not going to go through all of them. You can go grab the book. It's a great book. But it just gives us the freedom to recognize that these are tools that God gives us for us to be able to express a healthy way. The Bible tells us oftentimes that it's okay to be angry, but it says don't sin. Don't sin. And so, before we jump into the text, let me kind of dispel some of some of the myths that we have when it comes to these. Because I know some of you guys are like, man, this dude is kind of getting all, you know, and I'm not, I, I get it. But let me kind of do, kind of just dispel some of these myths. The first myth that I think about is this idea that you can be too emotional. You can be too emotional. Let me just say to you, It's no such thing as being too emotional, but you can express your emotions unhealthily, right? This idea is very critical for us. I would venture to say that it is impossible to be spiritually healthy without being emotionally healthy. It's not emotions themselves that are sin, but it's the way we express them that can lead us to either sin or victory. So on one end, we talk about emotions. We can be too emotional. But the other end is a thing that we believed in kind of our Christian life is that we believe that numbness equals godliness. And there's a huge misconception that we talk about when we talk about our emotions because we believe that we can take kind of our emotions to God and God's goal is to take our emotions away from us. It's it's sort of like we believe that if I can get to a place where I'm not infected or affected by things in this life, then I have reached a certain type of maturity. But see, but that's not what, that's not the goal. That if you surveyed the Psalms, when you think about even anger, you know who the most angriest person in the Psalms is? God. Just read. He was angry. Over and over and over again. Numbness doesn't equal godliness. But the truth is that God gives us the emotions. God gives us these feelings as as a navigational system. Or, I'm sorry, as a dashboard to help us navigate through the world, through kind of a broken world. And let me just kind of say that um, as a caveat because the, the reality is that our emotions are meant to be dashboards, not GPS systems, right? Whenever I go into a store, whenever I go into a store, who has, who has learned don't go grocery shopping while you're hungry? 
I mean, you've learned that, right? Why? Because the thought is, is that if I go to the grocery store and while I'm hungry, what ends up happening? You end up buying stuff you didn't want to get, right? That wasn't on your list. But let's just imagine if you recognize that I'm going to the store and you're willing to confess that I'm hungry, what ends up happening is that I have a tendency to do this while I'm hungry. So it's a dashboard to let me know because when I go in, it can lead me certain ways. And so emotions are a good place to tell you where they where you are, but they're a terrible place to make decisions. And that's one of the things that we recognize that. And then the last myth that we'll jump into the text is this, that all feelings, that we think that all feelings, especially those eight that I mentioned, are bad except for glad. That if you put that list back up for me, and that when you see that list, sad, anger, fear, hurt, lonely, shame, guilt, does anybody want any of those? No. All right. Glad. How many of you guys want that? Right? So you see, because what we've been taught is that all the other seven feelings are bad. And the only one that we want is glad. Feelings are tools. They're tools. And really what my prayer is, is that today by just looking at, you know, the life of David in a small snippet, and we can take many, many different um, lives um, of his stories and showing that this is a tool that is helpful for us to navigate how to walk with our God in the cool of the day. So let's look. Let's look. Let me, we're going to take a deep dive around hurt, and we're going to look at Psalm 109. Let me just kind of break down hurt. Um, hurt is the emotional and spiritual cry within us that lets us know that we have pain. It's the spiritual and emotional cry within us that lets us know that we have pain. That's um, according to Chip Dowd in, his, in the book, right? But our problem is, is that our, how we express those struggles are often kind of, you know, what leads us. You, you know, you may not be able to confess hurt, but you use words like this. It is what it is. Right? How many of you use that? It is what it is. Right? It took the wind out of me. Got stabbed in the back. Broke my heart. These are often words or terms that we use that, that basically are saying that I was hurt. I was hurt. Punched in the gut. Right? And so in this passage, what you're going to see is that, one, is that David had some hurt. And that hurt led to some resentment. And that resentment led to him kind of reasoning. And then it kind of ends with his resolve. You know, the word hurt literally means to kind of to bore through or to pierce. And as we read through the psalm, in Psalm 109, I want you to take notice of how David speaks as if a dagger has been placed on his chest and pushed into his heart. Let's pick it up. First five verses, it says this. God of my praise, do not be silent, for the wicked and deceitful mouths open against me. They speak against me with lying tongues. They surround me with hateful words and attack me without cause. In return for my love, They accuse me, but I continue to pray. They repay me evil for good and hatred 
for my love. In this passage, in these first five verses, what you see that the psalmist, it doesn't tell us exactly what was going on in David's life. There was lots of different thoughts of what people thought was, was taking place in there, that there was a friend. There was someone who was close that betrayed him, someone that he put trust in, who turned on him. And it had serious ramifications. Some believe that he's that he's talking about the time when David's men went in and that this in this psalm um, and he ate the bread. And then the people turned on him and told Saul, who was looking for it to kill him, basically told the people and they turned their back, people that David trusted and told Saul. And Saul goes back and he ends up killing all of the priests in that time. So there's some frustration, there's some anger, there's some backstabbing and some guilt. All of these things that David is is probably feeling in here. And so what you see in verse 2 that you see and you recognize that people were gossiping about him. They were talking about him. And not only were they talking about this, says um, in verse 2 it says people were also lying on him. Verse 3, when it says they surrounded me with hateful words and attacked me without cause, that there were people who were hating on him for no reason. That here is this man trying to do all of the stuff that to honor God. They were hating on him. And then in verse 4 it says, but in, instead of without cause, instead in return for my love, what do they do? They accuse me, but I continue to pray. When, even when he tried to reconcile with them, they stabbed him in his back. You see, Psalm 109, David was kind of fed up. He got to the end, and um, in the psalm, in Psalm 109, it's one of what I think um, of, of, of 30 or so, what they call impeccatory psalms. And basically, impeccatory psalms are just simply cursing psalms. David was cursing them out. He was mad. He was angry. He wanted vengeance to come. And it was this resentfulness that came out of David. Pick it up in verse 6. In verse 6 it says this. Set a wicked person over them. Alright. So he explains what's going on. He gives a context. And he basically says, man, this is some justified righteousness. Right? This is a type of righteousness that, you know, Liam Neeson type, Liam Neeson type of righteousness. Y'all know the Liam Neeson movies. That they, they took my daughter so now I can go kill 500 men to get my daughter back. Right. It's the type of justified righteousness that Moses, man, these two million people are all kind of complaining. Man, I know, God, you told me to strike the rock once, but I'm not going to. I'm going to strike it twice. Right. It's that type of righteousness that we feel that whenever someone has done wrong to me, that if I explain it to you, you would like, man, I would have did more than that. And so it's just like you feel like I'm godly because I could have did more, but I'm only going to do this. Right. So David is like instead of confessing, listen, I'm hurt in this early stages, that he grows this resentment. And then basically he starts to praying and starting to curse them. In verse 6 he says, set a wicked person over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. He is basically asking for someone, somebody, one of these rulers to oppress them. Verse 7, he says, when he is judged, let him be found guilty. And let his prayer be Counted as sin. Let his days be few. Let another take over his portion. Let his children be fatherless and his wife 
a widow. You talking about mad? This brother is, he is raging out. He is angry. He's asking for God to judge and to punish them by putting him to death. He says, make his kids fatherless. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 10, he says, let his children wander as beggars, searching for food far from their demolished homes. Let a creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder what he has worked for. Let no one show him kindness. And let no one be gracious to his fatherless children. We talk about the man after God's own heart here. Right? We, we were talking about David, and as he goes, he's asking God to punish not just the men, he says, punish their family. He said, and he's asking him to show the fury, just like of God's wrath, all the way, and this is kind of expressing the resentment that's in David's heart right now. So far that it's like all biblical boundaries and everything has just been thrown out the window. That if you were to look at Deuteronomy chapter 26, one of the things that you would realize is that, that David is in direct disobedience or violation to an Old Testament law. That it was a, a violation to, to pray. God forbade that to, to just kind of just like make a man fatherless, erase them from all generations, erase all their generations. Verse 13, he says, let the line of his descendants be cut off. Let their name be blotted out in the next generation. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And do not let his mother's sin be blotted out. He's talking about my mama now. Let their sins always remain before the Lord. And let him remove all memory of them from the earth. He asked God to blot out, blot this family out. From history. And we recognize that having one's family terminated was considered to be the greatest tragedy during the Middle Eastern time. David is asking God, praying to God, that the worst could happen to whoever betrayed him. You see, the psalmist prayed. David prayed that God would do several specific things and primarily it was to envidge him because he was hurt. He was hurt. But what we see in verse 16 through 20 is that he begins to justify. Because anytime you don't confess your hurt and it leads you to resentment, you start beginning to justify your resentment. You begin to justify your actions. He goes in verse 16, he says, for he did not think of showing to show kindness, but pursued the suffering, needy and brokenhearted. In order to put them to death, he loved cursing. Let it fall on him. He took no delight in blessing. Let it be far from him. He wore cursing like his coat. Let it be, let it enter his body like water. And go into his bones like oil. Let it be like a robe he, he wraps around himself, like a belt he always wears. Let this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil against me. You see, 
David recognized that his enemy had practiced all the things that David had talked about. So David is not like talking about untruthful things. These were real truths. These were real pains, real hurts, real things that was happening. And it led to kind of this resentment to David that he's praying this impeccatory prayer that God will curse him to the nth degree. And see, in the end, this he was merciless. And he recognized that this accuser was merciless and he needed to be afflicted. And, you know, and this is kind of where we get like, right, like, man, it's not just happening to me. It's happening to everybody else. God, you have to punish him. And he talked about this man, how he loved to curse other people rather than blessing them. You see, one of the things that we recognize in this is that when David is, is talking about kind of his hurt, that this hurt led him to resentment. And then like we talked about, resentment leads to revenge, and revenge leads to scorn. And we begin, and then what ends up happening is that it ultimately leads us to isolation. That the very essence of sin, all the way from the garden, sin is not just breaking a moral code, breaking a moral code. Sin is when we violate relationships. That when we talk about the idea of relationship is that Christianity is not about to simply, it's not just a religion, but it's about relationships. And we use relationships in its plural. It's a relationship with God, relationship with our other neighbors, relationship with other believers. And it's kind of those relationships that helps us to understand. And what sin does is that it divides these relationships. And so it's when we have these emotions and we're unwilling to confess these emotions, that each one of these emotions will lead you unconfessed or unstated, will ultimately lead you to isolation. It will lead you to being all alone. Instead of being able to, to embrace where it is that I am hurt and how does that lead me ultimately to health and healing. You see, and so what we see in this psalm is basically in these first um, 20 verses is that David is like you and I. He's living in, 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 in his feelings. He's living in the flesh. It is not that he's hurt. The Bible never rebukes the fact that he's hurt. But it's how he's expressing that hurt. But then we end up having this gospel moment that we have in verse 21. It says, but you, Lord, my Lord, deal kindly with for your name's sake, because your faithful love is good. Rescue me, for I am suffering and needy. My heart is wounded within me. You see, you ever had those kind of those but God moments? Where you want to start, you, you are living in your resentment. You are living in your hurt, but then there's kind of that but God moment in that you recognize your identity in Christ. You recognize what God is calling you to be and do. And so David has this kind of, but you, Lord, my Lord, deal kindly with me. At this point, David goes from basically external, judging all externally, and then he goes to internal. And he reestablishes this love relationship that he has with God. And he says, deal kind with me. Why? For your name's sake, because of your Faithful love. That word right there, faithful love, basically the, the Hebrew word is hesed love. 
It's this covenantal love that he's establishing, that David is basically going back because right now he doesn't feel this. So he goes back to what he knows, the truth of this love that will never leave you, that will never forsake him, that he reestablishes kind of this, this gospel moment. And he begins to turn from trusting in vengeance to trusting in the Lord. And that trust allows him to move from resentment to relationship. This covenantal love, this request that he has. And it's it's at that moment that, that David, in a way, he begins to confess his neediness. He says, God, I recognize this is all the things I want to do to him. This is all the stuff that's going in, into me. And I'm, and I'm probably justified by all of the stuff that if we were to sit down with David, it was like, man, we would have been like, man, David, dang. So he's probably justified in, in our minds and all these things. But he has this kind of but God moment. He, he reestablishes his identity and this covenant love that God has. And he recognizes his neediness that he is not powerful in this situation, but he is very powerless. That he recognizes his his neediness for in, in this passage. And one of the things that we, we must recognize here is that resentment oftentimes is a product of trying to find solutions for rejected hurt. That's all it is. Where I might not be able to understand the hurt, but I understand my resentment. And it's whenever you're finding that, that you come to that moment of what, what are you trying to do? And you're really trying to find a solution to being rejected, to being hurt, that, that we begin to have. And see, when we recognize that when hurt, this again, Chip Dodd says, when hurt is denied, minimized, or projected onto another, it becomes resentment. It becomes resentment. It's our inability to confess. And this is really in the, in, you know, again, in the natural, what we do is that when we don't accept. I don't know if you guys remember a couple of years ago, LeBron James was on the Cleveland Cavaliers and he ended up going to the greatest team in basketball, the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, but as he was on the thing that they had this press conference, there was this press conference. In the press conference, because right when he, um, before he left, they began to ask, um, they was asking him the question um, in his, in his uh, last year. It was just like about Kyrie leaving and going to the Celtics. And so Kyrie Irving, who ended up going to the Boston Celtics, he was asking, like, how did you feel about Kyrie? How did you, about him leaving? How did you, and, I, and if you can go back, it's on YouTube. If you go back and play that video, that he, they asked him a very specific question. They said, LeBron, how did you feel about Kyrie leaving? LeBron goes in, and you know what he does? Instead of confessing his hurt, what he does is that he begins to explain a whole bunch of things. Man, I was just, you know, I, was, I just didn't, was caught off guard. It was a thing. I just didn't know what it was. Like, he did everything. I tried to do everything I could do for my little brother, you know, and I was just, like, he went through all things, you know, and he said all the indicators of that he was hurt. But you know what? Never at one time did he ever say I was hurt. Because, you know, if he would have said he was hurt, then what he would have just done is that he would have empowered Kyrie. And it was nothing I'm going to do to empower you to let you know that you hurt me. And because whenever we begin to confess our emotions, that begins to empower people. And so this is why we are not going to empower anyone. 
instead. And so we see this. We see Paul or um, um, David in here. And this stood out to me more than anything because I remember that um, I was, I remember going, um, it was about, what, 12, 12 years ago. Um, I was living in, I was, you know, I played college football. I was, you know, still playing in um, flag football. So, you know, just like any great athlete, you you begin to play out your years in flag football, right? And so I was doing that and wanting to show people how great I was at this game of flag football. It's just like I, I do recognize that, like, my um, sports life is the last thing that God has redeemed in, in my life. Um, but... And, he, and still is redeeming. But I've got into one of the moments, and John knows those moments. I've gotten many texts and all those things, but this, again, this is not about that confession. It's about another one. Um, as I'm in this game, I remember I'm going through, and I'm playing, and where our team is down, and I'm just like, man, just throw me the ball. Throw me the ball. Like, you know, just like, I'm just going to moss them. I'm just like, throw me the ball. And I'm just going out, and, and a couple of times I get, I get it, and I spike the ball down. I'm just all about me, and I'm just doing that. All right, so the next time I'm going, I'm like, man, the game is about to be on the line. Throw me the ball. So I go, and I'm jumping up, and I, you know, catch the bar. I don't even know what happened. But then I come down, and my patella tendon snaps. It snaps. Yeah, it felt like that. And, and as I was going, I remember going to the doctor, going to the hospital. I ended up having the surgery. And during that time, 12 years ago, when I had that surgery, that what they did was is that they had scar tissue, right? Like that they built around the patella tendon and you spend, it was um, the first six weeks within a straight leg cast. And the whole goal was just allowing the scar tissue to build up around it. So the straight leg scar tissue, that's the goal so that it can give a place for it to heal. And then after the six weeks that you would go in and then you would start physical therapy. And literally, the physical therapy would be the times of them taking that scar tissue, and they would start to break it. And I'm not talking about inches. I'm talking about millimeters. And it is one of the most painful experiences that I have ever experienced in the entirety of my life. And I remember going through with my ruptured patella tendon and going through it many times that I remember going and says, you know what? I would rather live the rest of my life limp than have to go through this PT. And I I was dead serious. And I remember just going through because I just was like, I am not willing to go through the pain of the rehabilitation process to getting me back. And as I was just thinking about that so much in, in a physical way, that when I think about the same thing with a hurt emotionally, so many Christians, so many people have said, they have resigned and says, I would rather not have to go through the emotional pain of the rehabilitation process of going through therapy that I would rather live the rest of my life limp than to go through. And it literally is to this day that as I'm walking and it's a testimony because I end up rupturing the other patella tendon. And I remember the time. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Feel sorry for me. Self-pity. Like, but it was like it was in that time that I remember that it hurt 
and, I, and all of these things, but it wasn't until, it wasn't until that I heard that it was another ruptured patella tendon and I immediately lost it because I remember the pain that I experienced before. And I was just like, I don't want to ever have to go through that pain or even that rehabilitation ever and ever again. And ultimately, what I've learned in that and I've learned through that and what God was showing me and has shown me through this process is that that's what it's like to do the emotional work. It is so hard for many of us to go back and just conjure up the father wounds, the dad, the mother wounds, the friend wounds, the, all the wounds that have been brought, that, have, that we have just allowed the scar tissue to kind of go around. And that's the way we do it. It's just like, if I just don't touch it, if I just don't deal with it, then it will just kind of just be protected and it'll be here and I just have to worry about it. And I've learned how to navigate life. But we're all kind of walking around with this limb. We're walking around because we're not willing to do the emotion. We're not willing just to confess that I was hurt. And it produces this resentment. It produces this anger. And this is what David was doing. You see, but it wasn't until unless we give everything to God. And unless we have those but God moments. The but God moments is that when we, whether it's we come to church, whether it's in our devotion, that we raise up Jesus, the person and work of Christ, and we get a chance to see that he is greater than even our hurt. That what Jesus did, that he said to Peter when he was at, in Matthew chapter 16, where, where he was just like, I am the son of God, and upon this rock I will build my church. And then all the people come and they say, man, you are, and everybody excited. And in the same breath, he says, all right, so here's the plan. I'm going back to Jerusalem. And I'm going to die. And Peter was just like, no, no, Jesus, that's not a good idea. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And this is where you see one of what we get, the passion verses. A willingness to endure the pain for something that's greater than the pain. Jesus says, I must go back and die. I must experience the ultimate death so that you can have life. And he goes on and says that if anyone wants to follow me, he must also take up his cross, deny himself and follow me. What my aim today was for us to first normalize what God has given you as tools, emotions, feelings. Using these tools as simply a good place, a healthy place to tell you where you are so you, that you can take them to God. Because as we know that in any hurt, if I go into a doctor and if I just tell the doctor, yo, doctor, I'm hurt, fix me. What can the doctor do? It can't do much. But the more specific that I am at describing my pain, the more ability he can help to fix the pain. If we don't learn how to do human truth, we're not going to really know how to do gospel truth. The human truth is that God has given you humanity, emotions. These emotions God gives us to help us take all of us to him. And the more specific that we are at, in our ability to name where we are, the better both others 
and as we are, that we will be as we take those to God. I really believe is our unwillingness to truly trust God with this area of our lives is hindering us from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus has called us. And it's really, it's, it's ironic because it's the very thing that we think is like our unwillingness to confess is the thing that's keeping us. That we think that is, that we are trying to get that abundant life. And so my prayer is that, is the same prayer that David did when he recognized that he was in his feelings in an unhealthy way. That you, that I would have that but God moment. And those but God moments where we reaffirm the person and work of Jesus, when we reaffirm his covenant love that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, when we affirm that he is the reason to find that we have our identity in Christ, we will never trust God to live life in the fullest. God gives us these tools called emotions to help us to navigate through a broken world. And that's the bottom line. That we have to wrestle between the fact that God is faithful and our world is broken. And how do we navigate those two? Because if you are unwilling to confess, what you end up doing is that you will start blaming God. You will start blaming him. And he will be the reason. Instead of trusting, accepting that God has given you like a newborn babe, crave, cry out. And just like we as parents will meet our kids whenever they cry out, God, our father, because of the personal work of Jesus, every time we cry out, he will meet our needs. And he will reestablish that covenantal love that he has. And it's out of that love that Paul says that I am now compelled to live for him. It starts with us being human. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray as we've looked at a real case of uh, you declare a man after your own heart. Wasn't, David wasn't a man without sin. He wasn't even a man without emotions. That even we saw that he was a man that was um, flawed in many ways. But he was a man that, that desired and that fully lived present before you. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would embolden each and every one of us to take wherever we are to God, not as a means to sin, but as a means to trust you. Lord, we are thankful, Lord, that you are not overwhelmed with our feelings, but you even tell us to cast those feelings upon you because you care. So, Father, it's us that we need to learn how to truly trust you with everything. Trust you with the tools that you've given us to take us out of our head and down into our hearts. So, Father, I pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you, Father. And it's because of Jesus 
that you care about.